Hello, everyone, and welcome to the first episode of History at a Glance. I'm your host, Josh Cohn, and today I want to discuss the book Gaza, a History by Jean-Pierre Filou. Hopefully I pronounced his name right, because he has written this book, which has changed my perspective on an extremely important global issue. The book is one of the most well-researched on the subject of the Gaza Strip, and it's colorful but horribly tragic history. The, the author is actually a professor of Middle East Studies at Sciences Po in Paris, and his ability to offer a comprehensive and objectively honest view of Gaza's struggle for survival amid the wider Israeli-Palestinian conflict is something I deeply admire. I want to start, ironically enough, at the beginning of this book, because it does a great job at addressing the thousands of years of conquest and historical events that Gaza has endured. In addition, for people who have misconceptions and are uninformed on this issue, the long historical timeline that this book offers gives people even more perspective and depth on an area that is constantly misrepresented in the media and portrayed in a woefully ignorant way. I really believe once you have an understanding of history on any issue, you're more likely to form nuanced and intelligent opinions. Let's explore the ancient history as a way to contextualize recent political and public discourse on the Gaza Strip. The book starts off in this fascinating way because it talks about the fertility of Gaza thousands of years ago and how travelers would remark about how viable the land was for growing vegetation and general agriculture. And this is something that's very interesting, even in a modern political context, because you often hear as part of the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, this idea that Israel is trying to incur or conquer more land to harvest agriculture and other things in the land of Gaza is very fertile. You can grow many things. Uh, this is true in a lot of ways of the West Bank as well. The West Bank is known a lot for growing olives, these incredible olive orchards and selling olive oil. It's incredible. Um, the land is very prosperous in a lot of ways if the right conditions apply. And it's situated, specifically Gaza is situated right on the coastline of the Mediterranean. And it's in, it's in a perfect region because to the west, to sort of the southwest, is the Sinai Peninsula. It's like the desert region that is part of Egypt now. And to the direct south of Gaza is Jordan and the modern country of Saudi Arabia. Mod, uh, many traders throughout history have come up through the Hejaz region of Saudi Arabia and have traded with a lot of the local inhabitants of Gaza and the people around. So so this is an area that has so much history and the, the book just wants to start off talking about how people have seen this area as extremely viable and extremely important. So the book starts off talking about these people called the Hyksos and the Hyksos were the first to establish bases sort of to the south of Gaza, to launch conquests into Egypt. Much later, they founded the 15th dynasty of pharaohs in Egypt. But eventually, they're 
kicked out of Egypt by the ruler of Thebes. And Thebes was an ancient city in Egypt. Afterwards, Egypt, ruled by the III, wanted to expand Egypt's territory. So he starts a military campaign against Syria. And the book says the year is about 1457 BC. He takes command of these troops going up this road called the Horus Road from Egypt. And it was it was an actual road going toward the towards the north, up up through up to Syria, through through Gaza, obviously, and through what is now considered Lebanon. And after he did this, there's this celebration after 23 years of his claim to the throne of Gaza, his conquest of that land. A force of his military of about 20,000 men go into the land. And the author talks about how this is at a time when Gaza becomes extremely prosperous and its city starts to grow exponentially. Much, much later, in the 12th century BC, the sea people come. Egypt is able to hold on to most of the territory in the land of Canaan. Canaan is the, is the very, very ancient uh, term for, for what is Palestine now, back when nobody had been ruling, back when it was ruled by the Canaanites, which are smaller tribes uh, and kingdoms around that area. So continuing, Egypt, Egypt can hold on to this land. These, these various sea people come from Mediterranean, from these coasts to invade. And this is where you get the, the Philistines. Now the Philistines were the strongest of the sea people. And they, they, they established themselves in this region called the Negev Desert. And so the Negev is very close to Gaza, or what's the Gaza Strip now. It's in the south of uh, Palestine or Israel, however you want to say it. And they also established themselves in the Sinai, which is further west to the Negev. And it's attached to modern-day Egypt. It's a, de it's a desert peninsula. And, and when they conquer this land, it becomes known as Philistia the land of the Philistines. And this is eventually where you get the name of Palestine, actually. And this is something that I didn't know about. I, I, I had to learn this pretty recently, that Palestine, that name hasn't always existed at, at its current form. And we'll, and we'll, get, we'll get into more of that uh, later on. Now, so the Philistines, eventually, because of the, 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 the region that they're in, the, the the part of the land of Canaan, or Palestine, as it'll become known later on, that part is, they're, they're towards the coastline. So they have, they have huge control over, the, over, over trade. And this is, a, this is a key to conflict. This is, this is, one group has more power, basically, over all of the other groups that are starting to emerge from Canaan. And so the Philistines have established themselves. They're here. And eventually, they're coming into contact with the local Jewish tribes because the Jewish tribes actually have 
a lack of access to the sea is extremely important. Obviously, they're in a they're in a Mediterranean climate. You you need sea to be able to. Obviously, that's your water source. It's also a great source of trade. There's all of these countries around the Mediterranean basin that you can trade with. You can you can get new ideas from them. But the Jewish tribes aren't having any of that. They're they're basically the Philistines. They have so much military power. They've gone. They've garnered enough resources of having control over the sea and the areas which with which they're in. That this 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 struggle begins between the Philistines and the Jews. Now, this is very interesting to me because if you've ever read the Bible, these stories are like the back of your hand. You know, the the these. This conflict is actually the origin of the stories of Samson and David and Goliath. You know, Goliath is the giant of the Philistines. And David is the hero of the Israelites or the Jewish tribes as they'll later become. And, and, and this, is, this is fascinating to me because this shows contextually how these kinds of things emerge. And how very, very ancient conflicts can still play a role, or at least in their symbolic nature, can play a role in sort of aggravating the conflict as it stands. Now, talking about the stories specifically, the book talks about the Old Testament. Obviously, the Old Testament is the Hebrew or the Jewish portion of the Bible. And so the book talks about how in the Old Testament, God promises the Israelites to deliver Israel, which was how the Jews themselves saw this land that they're inhabiting. He's, God says, I'm going to deliver you, I'm going to deliver the Philistines from you. I'm going to kick out your invaders. So we see this, this sort of narrative beginning to emerge. And what, what we see is that Samson is directly challenging the Philistines, at least in the, in the Old Testament in the, in the story. He's challenging the Philistines' authority. And Samson, as, we, as people might know, he's considered the strongest... Uh, man on earth. He's he. God promises the Israelites he'll drive the Philistines out of the land of Israel, and this is done by the 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 birth. You know, it's it says the angel of God. You know, announces the birth of Samson, and Samson is the strongest man. He's going to deliver. Going to deliver the Philistines out from the land of Israel through his. Incredible strength, but, but on one condition, that his hair is never cut. He's eventually betrayed by someone. He has his eyes, he has his hair shaved, and his eyes are eventually, he's, he's blinded. Now, they, they, the, this is central to the narrative as well, because these geographical locations play a huge role in, in, in these stories. So... Actually, Samson is brought to the prison in Gaza. 
And the, the, the Philistines, the people that had brought him there, didn't understand that his, you know, obviously this is a story, but, the, but this, this, this is relevant. Just, just follow me here. They don't understand that his strength comes from his hair. So his hair grows out and his strength eventually comes back. And he takes, the, he takes down the pillars of the temple of, their, of the Philistines' deity. And, 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 and this, is, this is central to these ideas of, you know, the victim, you know, the weak force versus the stronger invading army. And this will play later, actually, these kinds of stories, although maybe not directly attributed or, or relevant, do start to play a story in the modern political context of the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. And so the other story, as people know, is David and Goliath. He, he, he takes a sling. You know, he's, this, he's, he's a child. He's a boy against this gigantic man named Goliath. And Goliath is, I don't know how, said to be how tall or whatever, but he's of, he's of gargantuan size. And you can imagine this dichotomy portrays something that's that's very uh, sim- it's very symbolic to the to the Jews in the area. So eventually, David defeats Goliath with a sling, just a sling and a rock. It's very 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 simple. And now we have more conquests of Canaan. We have another pharaoh. He, he starts to occupy Gaza as he, as he wants to conquer the rest of the Levant. The Levant is the area of Israel-Palestine, Syria, Jordan, and Lebanon. And so we actually get a reference to this pharaoh. This, this pharaoh is named Sheshonk I. And he, his name is Shishak in the Bible. And the book talks about how Gaza was basically forced to pay tribute to, to, to the reigns now of the, the Israelite kings, uh, Solomon and Hezekiah. But the city itself, Gaza, it remained a Philistine city until the 8th century BC. And during this period, you see the Assyrian Empire come into play. And now we have this interesting conflict. We have this interesting back and forth. So you have the king of Gaza named Hanun. And what what he's trying to do is he's trying to he's trying to pit one side against the other as as the book explains. You know, you're you're the smaller, weaker tributary state and you you're like where how am I going to gain power through all of this? So he tries to play Assyria and Egypt against each other 
and eventually they're dominated by the Assyrians. But its autonomy was actually recognized by the Syrians. Eventually the Assyrian Empire collapses. Gaza is back in the hands of the Egyptians. Later on, Egypt has to bow down to the Babylonian Empire of Nebuchadnezzar II. And now we're seeing the front lines change. Eventually, even the Babylonians, their empire is conquered by Cyrus the Great of the Persian Empire. And now we're seeing some interesting things happen. Gaza is still able to survive. It's still, it still retains a lot of its identity as a city. And it talks about in here, with the rule of the Persians, Gaza is still able to prosper. It's, 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 it's at an it's intersection of all of these empires that have come through. And it's able to re- retain its, its, its identity as a city. And so... Where it's 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 interesting. It's interesting that it was able to retain its own identity throughout all of these conquests so far. It's a good it's a good thing. If you if you look at it from a cultural perspective, although all of these forces that have come in have shaped it in various ways and have been have imbued their culture into that area we still have this 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 self-identity as as gaza as this this part of the land and now we're seeing a new player in this arena we've had we've already had so many before we've had some of the most powerful empires around the middle east come and conquer gaza and conquer the surrounding areas and it's, it's crazy to think that, that even more brutal and bloody conflicts are to follow. So now we have Alexander the Great of Macedonia. And now he's able to conquer Gaza in the year 333 BC. And we see that the population is backed up by Arab mercenaries in their attempt to resist Alexander's military conquest. And now the book talks about how Alexander surrounded the city a year later. My mistake, in 333 BC, he had conquered Alexandria, not Gaza yet. He had conquered Alexandria in Egypt, and Alexandria is obviously named after Alexander. You can actually look on a map right now, or at least ancient map. Alexandria still exists as a modern-day city in Egypt, but there's also other cities because of Alexander the Great's conquests. As far as India, even... 
there's places like Alexandria of Bactria. Bactria was an ancient uh, kingdom, I think, in Central Asia, or what is now Central Asia, Asia around Turkmenistan, Uzbekistan, sort of to the north of uh, northeast of Iran. So, anyways, it's three thirty-two BC. Uh, Alexander is. He's deep in the trenches. He thinks that he's going to basically capture the city because of all of his military might so far. He thinks he's going to capture the city and it's going to be quick. But now he's wounded. And it talks about how After Alexander was wounded, the people that continued to fight, Gaza's eventually conquered, they were uh, dealt a horrible blow. And this is after being conquered by many empires already, but it just shows how bloody the history of Gaza truly is. It says, people who were thought to have fought against Alexander's forces were slaughtered and their families were sold into slavery. And this is standard practice. This is not anything unlike what previous empires had been doing or something that's unknown to the Greeks or any of the other ancient people of that time. And it talks about how Gaza is essentially robbed of its resources. It's, it's the Greeks take, the Macedonians take so much of their war booty from Gaza and it's, it's devastating. And so the people who were still left, the Greek colonists, actually rebuilt the city of Gaza and this is, this is sort of where you start to get, through Alexander's conquests, you start to get the Hellenization of that region and other regions in the Middle East. But this is especially re relevant when we talk about Gaza and we also talk about the, um, the Jewish tribes, actually, because if people know their history on the region and of the Jewish tribes... They know that eventually Jews became very Hellenized and it changed the shape of, of Judaism, specifically Second Temple Judaism, which plays a role very, very later on with the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, but even so with uh, smaller conflicts throughout history that shaped modern Jewish thought. Alexander dies in 323 BC. Uh, his empire is broken up, I think, into four pieces. You have Egypt, which becomes ruled by Ptolemy, becomes Ptolemaic Egypt. You have Asia Minor, ruled by another of his successors. You have Le the Levant region. And you have the regions of Persia, 
that are ruled over by Alexander's successors. And so now you have Ptolemaic Egypt and the Seleucid Empire, which is ruled over by Alexander's successor in Persia. And they're, they're fighting over, over, over the city of Gaza. So Ptolemy takes a hold over the entire land of Palestine. He has a very convenient route from where he is in Egypt. He can go up through the Sinai. And he has access to the Mediterranean as well from Egypt. And he's able to launch military campaigns. The ruler of the Seleucid Empire establishes himself in the north of Syria to launch campaigns against Ptolemaic Egypt. Now, eventually, through this conquest, or sorry, this confrontation and eventual battles, the Seleucids took control of Gaza. And this is another example of Gaza remaining or retaining its cultural identity. It talks about the fact that they would still worship this god called Zeus Marnus. And this god is actually, from what the book tells, from what the book says, is connected to the Philistine cult of Dagon. Dagon was one of the Philistine deities and is actually the Philistine is he's the the deity whose temple gets pulled down by Samson. And so we have another cycle of history follow after this. The Seleucids are are destined to fail just as as much as their predecessors. And now we have the emergence of the Roman Empire. And the Seleucids tried to sort of challenge the power that the Romans, the Romans sort of authority. Eventually, the Seleucids, because of the uh, the arrogance of their ruler at the time, Antiochus III, they were eventually forced to pay tributary to the Romans. And now, after many successions to the throne of the Seleucid Empire... the rome rome is getting is getting more more involved the seleucids are are losing power in the area 
and, and Rome is able to insert its, its influence in the region. And, and you're, this is at a point in history where you're starting to see the emergence of more and more of uh, Jewish rebellions, and you're, you're starting to get the establishment or at least the stories that will drive certain narratives in the future. And so it, we start to see how Gaza is impacted by the rebellions of the Jews, by the Maccabee family. Um, they didn't want to ver worship the pagan gods of Rome. They led a rebellion. They eventually attack Gaza. And this is actually recorded in the Bible as Gaza is burned, their orchids are burned, and Gaza is forced to send sons of people in the city to Jerusalem as hostages. Jerusalem is sort of the capital at this time of the Jewish rebellion. And now the Jews are still engaged with the Seleucids. And now we start to see the emergence of the Hasmoneans, the, the independent kingdom of the Jews in Palestine. They were the successors of the Maccabees. They eventually tried to seize the city of Gaza. They, they sacked the city. They massacred a bunch of people. And they actually, through their conquest, through their, through their siege of the city, are able to enforce or sort of Judaize the population. And this is noted in, in this book as having a, a significant impact on the indigenous community in Gaza. The Romans are eventually able to conquer Jerusalem. This brings an end to the Hasmonean hold over Gaza. Eventually, you get more and more attacks by Jewish rebels because of the pagan gods that the Romans built temples to in the land. There's a rebellion called the Bar Chokba, Chokba Rebellion, excuse me. The Jews are able to survive in the region. This is starting to shape the, the, the communities that will eventually 
become Christian, actually, because from all of the catastrophes that the Jews suffered throughout this entire history by the hands specifically of the Romans, you start to see the emergence of ideas of messianism by the local Jewish cults that existed there. And eventually, Rome converts to Christianity. Obviously, this happened over many hundreds of years. It, it emerges with Constantine. He was the first to... To, to to be uh, like a baptized Roman Empire uh, emperor, sorry. And this essentially converts the Roman Empire through time to Christianity. And this is something that is going to affect the region. For many years to come, the fact that Christianity is now established as the dominant religion of the Roman Empire, this is how the Romans will establish their rule over the region. There's other smaller groups, the Jews still exist in the region, there's still smaller groups like Zoroastrians who are the, which was like the, the religion of the Persians at that time, and you have Samaritans which are sort of an offshoot of Jews. They believe in a lot of the same things that the Jews do. They have similar customs, but some of their beliefs are just a little bit different. And now, this perfectly segues into the Islamic era. This is at an end. We're seeing that the region is slowly becoming... Christian, because of the rule of now the Eastern Roman Empire, under first under Constantine. And so, hundreds of years later, in the 7th century, we get the Islamic era. And the conquest of the Muslims changes the region once again permanently. And this will shape Gaza's history in a dramatic way. I'd even argue more so than the other conquests up until the modern conflict today within Palestine. Coming into the 7th century, we have two great empires still able to control large swaths of land across the Middle East. On the one hand, you have the Byzantines, which is the Eastern Roman Empire, and on the other hand, you have the Persians. Now, the Byzantines had control all the way from North Africa up to Asia Minor and around the Mediterranean. 
and the Persians had control over most of what is now central Iraq and Iran and parts of Central Asia. And it's amidst this backdrop in the 7th century that we see a new religion emerge and a powerful contender in control of the Middle East in the form of Islam. Now just taking a few steps back before Islam comes into being, we have to understand the context and the surrounding environment that allowed Islam to come into being. Like I said before, on the one hand, you have two mighty empires, but also you have a tradition of trade in Gaza and across the Hejaz region of Saudi Arabia and different parts of modern-day Jordan and Syria. So you have various trade networks that are all happening at this time. Now, the Arab tribes were known to come up in caravans. They traded with a lot of people. They traded stories. They have an um, oral tradition of poetry, this magnificent poetry. And it's in this backdrop of trading under the control of the Roman Empire that we see this man named Hashem. Now, Hashem is actually Muhammad, the prophet of Islam, great-grandfather. And what he used to do was he was like a normal trader that you would see in Arabia, in the Arabian Peninsula. He used to travel in caravans. He used to come up to specifically to Gaza. He used to trade with the local inhabitants there. And he also used to provide food and water for religious pilgrims to the Kaaba in Mecca. And for those who don't know, the Kaaba is a large black box in the city of Mecca in modern-day Saudi Arabia. It's, what's, it's what Muslims pray to when they do their five daily prayers. They pray to Mecca, specifically the Kaaba. The Kaaba is the central point. It's the idea of the cent- central nature of Allah, the God of Islam. But the Kaaba used to serve as a point of having idols for the various polytheistic tribes of Arabia. And we have to remember, uh, Arabia was polytheist mostly before Islam arrived. And there were also Christians and Jews in the area as well. Mostly polytheists. We have records of different gods and goddesses in the area at that time. And they all used to place their idols near the Kaaba. Now this is important later on when we talk about how Islam emerged. But talking about this right now, Hashem used to provide food and water for these pilgrims. And at the same time, he was a part of a wider network of Meccan caravans that would go up through what is now Jordan and Palestine and trade with the people there. And we also have the Nabataeans, who were an ancient civilization. They were the ones who built the city of Petra, the stone, the beautiful stone carving city. And they were inspired by the Romans. They're a Roman tributary state. And their architecture in the stone, how they carved it out, the pillars that they used, is very reminiscent of the Romans. 
So we have all of this going on. And the, ha- the ha- Hashemite dynasty actually comes from Hashem's name. And the Hashemite dynasty is the family that traced their lineage all the way back to Muhammad. They're the ones that are in power in Jordan right now. So we have this backdrop. Eventually, Hashem has a child. That child has a son named Abdullah. Abdullah is the father of Muhammad. And Muhammad is born. And now, many years later, Muhammad is now claiming to be a prophet. He's going around telling everybody about this god named Allah that the polytheists were familiar with. He was one of the gods at the Kaaba. And so we have this message of monotheism. It's a very revolutionary. Muhammad goes and destroys the idols in the Kaaba because they're worshiping pagan gods. They're associating things with Allah. It's no good. So this revolutionary idea comes called Islam. And so now we have this incredible new religion that synchronizes different ideas from Judaism and Christianity, but claims that it is the final message of God, that Muhammad is the final messenger of God, that he is the seal of the prophets. No one can come after him, and anybody that does is a false prophet. So it's under this backdrop that we have to understand how Gaza is eventually conquered again. Now Muhammad dies. He's succeeded by Abu Bakr. Abu Bakr is the first caliph of what would become known as the Rashidun Caliphate, which means the rightly guided. And after Abu Bakr, we get Umar ibn Khattab. And Omar ibn Khattab is the one that's responsible for spreading Islam through jihad much further than Muhammad's first conquest in the Arabian Peninsula and much further than the control they had under Abu Bakr. And Omar is the one that leads the conquest of Gaza. So in 637 AD, we have the eventual conquest of Gaza. And this is one of the most revolutionary turning points in the history of Gaza. So now we have a new religion. It's spreading rapidly. People are slowly being Islamized. They're also slowly being more Arabized. Arabic is obviously the language of the Quran. So more people are speaking it rather than the local languages that existed in Gaza and other places of the Middle East. And so what's interesting to note as well is that Gaza has a history of being inhabited by Arabs even before Islam arrived. Going back to what I was saying earlier about Hashem and the Nabataeans, the Nabataeans were also Arab people. They founded their own city. 
And Hashem was a Meccan trader. He came up through Gaza. And there were also Arabs there at the time as well. So we have this backdrop. So you could see how it was easy to spread this religion because the people there were familiar with these sort of ideas. And now through successive years, we, did, we get different caliphates, we get different families of people controlling it. We get the Umayyads, we get the Abbasids, we get the Fatimids in Egypt specifically. And we're seeing this, this gradual flourishing of the religion of Islam in the Middle East. You eventually get the Crusades in the 11th century, starting in the 11th century. That's a turning point as well. It marks another point where the Muslims are able to defeat an invading army of a different religion. There's successive Crusades. Saladin reconquers Gaza. And so this is an interesting thing to understand about the region. It's, it's finally taking a permanent shape and form as an Islamic caliphate, as part of the wider ummah, the Muslim community. Gaza is slowly becoming more Arabized and Islamized. And so through the successive centuries, we see the change of hands of power of the different families and the different rulers. We have the Mongols that sack Gaza. They don't last for long. They're pushed out eventually. Even before that, you also had the spread of Islam in the Persian Empire. It, it, it Islamized the Persians and it also slightly Arabized the Persians as well. It introduces more Arab customs and the Arabic language. The Arabic language has an influence on Farsi, which is the Persian, Persian language. So we see that Islam is changing the entire Middle East. And obviously, through the successive centuries, like I said, we have the Mongols, and then we have the Ottomans eventually in the 16th century. And now the Ottomans were able to hold control for a very long time as the official caliphate, as the last caliphate that the modern world or the semi-modern world has ever seen. And so the Ottomans set up great administration in Palestine and they're able to set up a strong government in Palestine they have great influence over it they establish certain families in Gaza like the Radwan family and the Shafi family whose descendants eventually become administrators in Gaza specifically mares. And so now we're seeing the sort of modern shaping in the, in the Islamic era of Gaza. But we're seeing, we're seeing the last bits of what will be the caliphate shaping it. 
And so later on, past European colonialism, the Ottomans still have control over Palestine, but you have successive attempts by the French and the British to capture more land in the Middle East. You have Napoleon's conquest. You have him coming through Egypt to get to Gaza, but he's pushed back. He's never able to conquer Gaza. And now we're coming to the 1800s. Now in the 1800s, we're starting to see more ideas of what will later become the modern concept of nationalism that we all know very well. We're seeing extreme revolutionary events in Europe that will eventually have an effect on the Middle East later on. And we're coming to a point where we have to talk about the emergence of Jewish political thought in all of this, because it is part of the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. You have to talk about how, on the other side of the world, you have a different group of people vying for their idea of political sovereignty and power. And so it's within the 1800s that you start getting the idea of Zionism. Now, Zionism can be classified as a religious, but also secular idea. Most of the first Zionists were actually secularists. They were atheists, but it's also a religious idea. And the very basic concept is that Jews have to return to the land of Israel in order to be safe from persecution and to, if you want to go with the religious angle, that they have to return to build the second temple in Jerusalem and that this is the land of Israel and that where or sorry they are returning rather and so now we have this thought going in to the late 19th century and over the successive years the Ottomans still have control but things are changing in Europe we're getting closer and closer to World War I. We have tumultuous events in Europe. We have economic depression. We have changing values. We have scientific breakthroughs. And it's changing the framework of government in Europe. And we're getting more and more close to nation states rather than kingdoms and principalities. So now, let's talk about the impact of European nationalism on the modern thought of Zionism. Because we can't talk about Zionism unless we talk about European nationalism and this idea of self-determination. So the idea of Zionism... You could say it comes from the religion. I would personally say it would because it's this idea that's ingrained in the Bible that Jerusalem is the holy city, that God will save the Israelites, that all people need to do is come back and rebuild the land, that it's going to be great. And 
you can combine this religious thought with this idea in nationalism of my people are the greatest. We need to build our society up from the bottom up. We need to have self-determination. We need to set our own rules and guidelines, and we need to set our own national character. So this is the formation of what is Zionism. And Zionism is influenced by events that are happening in Europe, like the Dreyfus Affair, which is an incident when a French officer suffered under anti-Semitic persecution. He was accused of things that he didn't do. He was put on trial. People saw that the trial was completely unfair, and we're seeing the growing effects of anti-Semitism in Europe, and it's getting worse and worse. And so this is where we have somebody like Theodore Herzl come into play, and he is the father of Zionism as a political thought. And he himself was a secularist. He, if I'm not wrong, was an atheist. He didn't see this as a religious issue. He saw it as having a homeland for the Jews so that they would be safe from the persecution that he saw in Europe. And he made many appeals to people. He talked to many people in Europe, heads of states. He even went to the sultan of the Ottomans and tried to get a response from him or a sort of declaration that would give the Jews right to the land there because it was under Ottoman control. Obviously, the Ottomans didn't hand the land over. But what you have is a lot of immigration from Europe of those Jews into the land of Palestine. And this is going into the early 1900s now. We're in the 20th century. So you still have the local inhabitants of Palestine, mostly Muslims. There's a decent amount of Christians in the area. Christianity has lasted throughout all these years of Muslim rule. And you have a small amount of Jews that were there before the waves of immigration to Palestine in the early 1900s. So there's tension. There's tension. These are obviously different religious ideas. These are obviously two different people. You have, on the one hand, the Arabs that are indigenous to that land, and you have a people from Europe that don't understand the land, that have never seen diff these different kinds of people before, don't understand the culture, don't understand the religion. They don't know anything about it, but they're coming because they have this conviction of escaping persecution, and they want a land for themselves, and they want to establish a place where they'll never be able to be persecuted in the world. And a lot of them as well are driven by the idea of religion, because it's almost like you can't get the idea of Zionism without religion, because why else would they pick this specific plot of land rather than somewhere else if it wasn't if it didn't have anything to do with the religion. So, th so that's the motivation going in. Now on the other side of it, you have the indigenous Arabs. They're ruled under the Ottomans. The Ottomans still have a pretty strong hold over the area. They still have strong administration. They've set up many organizations in Palestine. And you can see their influence in the area at the time. But now you also have different groups 
of Jews coming and establishing their own synagogues and their own schools. So it's, the landscape is changing slowly and slowly once again. So now we get to World War One. Now World War One is when the Ottoman Empire finally collapses. We get the modern construction of Turkey under Ataturk, and now the Ottoman Empire has officially come to an end. We have the British who are helping the Arab tribes in Arabia push the Ottomans out so that they could have autonomous control. And we have the Ottomans now out of Palestine, and we have different European powers vying for control of the Middle East. We have the British who now have control over Palestine, and we have the French who have control over different parts of the Middle East like Lebanon and Syria. And so now you get the period of the British mandate in Palestine. And it's under this backdrop now that we get the Balfour Declaration. Declaration. And the Balfour Declaration essentially states that this land will be a land for the Jews. And this is in 1917. And so we can see that this is obviously a very unpopular thing with the local Arab inhabitants. They're being ruled over by the British. They don't want any more Jews in the, in the, the land itself. They view this as an issue of invading their sovereignty. But we still don't have the modern formation of Palestinian statehood now. But it will come later. But what we have now is this very tense period. There's many riots, many Arabs killing Jews over land disputes. We have Jews killing Arabs for the same thing. It's very bleak. It's it's not it's not a situation that the British can fully control and it's not looking good. After the Balfour Declaration, things are not looking very good in Palestine. In the twenties is when you get all of these riots from the Arabs, you get killings, and you get more and more influx of Jews in the late twenties and thirties from Europe whether that be from anti-Semitic persecution or just for religious convictions, like I mentioned earlier, people wanting to come to the land to supposedly do God's work and reestablish themselves in the land of Israel, as they would call it. There's a saying in Judaism that a lot of Jews say to each other, next year in Jerusalem, and so this sort of this statement sort of echoes that sentiment of coming back to the Holy Land, essentially. And so now in the late 30s, we're seeing the rise of Hitler in Germany. We're seeing Stalin in Russia. 
And it's between these two forces that a lot more people are immigrating. They're trying to escape from this persecution. This is before the Holocaust even. And this is actually where you're getting a lot of immigration. Obviously, World War II completely changes the conception of nation-states in Europe, but also worldwide. You see the loss of colonies from the French and the British. In the aftermath of World War II, more people are wanting their autonomy. You've, uh, you've had the Holocaust, so you have more, even more Jews coming and immigrating to the land of Palestine. And this is causing extreme tension. And you're starting to get even more violence, more militant groups of Jews and Arabs fighting each other. And it's, it's getting to a point where the British are losing control. And it's under this backdrop after World War II, that we get the British pulling out of pa Palestine. The mandate is over. And we get delegations going to the UN talking about establishing the nation of Israel in Palestine. And the UN plan is to divide... Palestine, halfway, essentially, more or less, into a land for Jews and a land for the local Arabs that live there. And if you look at a map of the partition plan, as it is later to be called, it's, it's more or less half, as I said. It's, it's very strange in a way because you almost have the what would become Israel in the middle, and you have larger areas that include Gaza and the West Bank on the other sides. And this partition plan is not something that the Arabs are willing to accept. They don't want this land to belong to the Jews because it's their, it's their land. They've been living on it for generations, the people there are mostly Arab, mostly Muslim. So the Jews coming in have a totally different religion. They have a different understanding. They don't understand the culture there. And so now we come into the modern establishment of the state of Israel and the conflict that robs Palestine of its statehood and the modern formation of Palestinian thought. We have the 1947 partition plan by the UN. This plan roughly divides the land of Palestine into two halves, one for the Jews and one for the indigenous Arabs. The Arabs rejected this plan flat out. They said this is colonialism, this is 
uh, foreign people coming into this land from a completely different continent. They don't have the same language as us. They don't understand anything about the history of this land. They're coming and they're taking it from us and they're buying it up. And this is completely illegal and amoral. Immoral, rather. And the Jews, on the other hand, are saying, no, no, we need a country for ourselves to escape the persecution from Europe. This was originally our land. They're basing it on biblical ideas of returning to the land of Israel of their supposed forefathers. This is the land that they had for many centuries before any of the other people that inhabited any of the other empires had inhabited before them. And they're coming to escape persecution. They need this country to create a shell where they will be a people that can't be persecuted within their own country. So the Jews accept the plan, the Arabs reject it. And in 1948, the state of Israel is declared. And almost immediately after, they go to war with all of the Arab states around them. And they come out of this war victorious. They come out of it a newly created country. They're one of the poorest in the world at that time. And they're one of the most technologically disadvantaged countries. And they essentially need to survive off the support of the U.S. and various other Western countries that had given them support during the 48 war and this catastrophe or this event is known to the palestinians as the nakba nakba literally means catastrophe because after the war had happened because of the ensuing violence and the events of a bunch of invading armies coming in, Israel forcing the Arabs out. They were pushed into refugee camps. A lot of them were even lucky to stay in the land that had been their forefathers for centuries. But they were forced into horrible, squalid conditions in refugee camps. And the other people who were unlucky were forced into the various other Arab countries around them, most often from the Gaza Strip into Egypt because it was the easiest to cross, obviously, because of the connection of the Sinai Desert and the passage into Egypt. And there's various refugee camps at this time in the Sinai and in cities in Egypt. Also in the West Bank, we have this with Palestinian refugees being forced into Jordan, but we want to focus on Gaza. Now, it's very important to note that the Arab countries don't give the Palestinians citizenship. They hold them as a bargaining tool. They want to deny them citizenship in order to hold them as a hostile and, and, and ideologically motivated people that are ready to return to their land. And as it's known, if, if the Palestinians are to return to Israel... Israel will cease to exist. I think this is a quote by uh, Gamal Abdel Nasser of Egypt. He, he said this. 
and it's in the aftermath of this war that you see the trauma and the and the pain and and all of the tragedy of what had occurred start to form the roots of Palestinian national identity, or at least a very, very strong foundation for the groups that will come. Specifically, I want to talk about the Fedayeen, because the Fedayeen are one of the most important groups. They're one of the groups that are the predecessors to a lot of the other uh, nationalistic groups that form, that are way more organized, but the Fedayeen are the, the foundation, are, are sort of the, the first people to oppose Israel militarily to not take this sitting down to come out from the Gaza Strip and fight back against the Israelis. And so we get a bunch of Fedayeen incursions into Israel to fight back. Uh, specifically in 1955, we get the first sort of invasion, if you will, of the Fedayeen into Israel of a group of Palestinians from Gaza. And this lays the nationalistic foundations for groups to come. And so now Israel is in a state where it has more land that was promised to it in the partition plan, and they're not going to give it up. But they don't have control over Gaza and they don't have full control over the West Bank. And there's going to be different locations in Palestine that they don't have control over yet, but we'll come to get, and we'll talk about that. So, it's very, very contentious. The Arab countries around Israel don't recognize it. They call it the Zionist entity. They're categorically opposed to it. They're willing to... Essentially, they're willing to fight against it if the time is right. They were humiliated during the 48 war, but they're still not willing to let go, and they're still willing to fight back when the opportunity arises. Now, we need to talk about the Muslim Brotherhood's influence in Gaza at this time. The Muslim Brotherhood has established itself in Gaza. They're originally from Egypt. They're an Islamist organization. They believe that a government needs to be guided by Islamic principles. They need to have Sharia. And they want to do so through democratic means, but they don't quite have the power yet. And so they've established themselves in Gaza. And this is going to influence Gaza tremendously in the next years to come and create more and more violence and nationalistic aspirations. And now we need to move and talk about the 1960s. We have a situation after Israel is independent where it's an uneasy situation. There's various groups that had come in after the war and had set up to help the Palestinian refugees. 
you have UNRWA, which is a group specifically for Palestinians, a relief organization for the Palestinians. They have organizations in Gaza and the West Bank, and they want to help provide the refugees with clothing and education. And we also have the Palestinian Red Crescent in Gaza as well. So we have aid organizations. We have people that want to mitigate the situation. But it's going to keep escalating and ramping up. Now in the 1960s, you're going to see a lot of fight over resources. And this is a major factor contributing to why the 1967 war happened or the Six-Day War happened is because Egypt, uh, Israel had disputes with countries like Egypt over access points to water and other resources, agriculture and things like that because the land is so surrounded by these other countries Israel has to go through other means to get its resources, and Egypt wasn't having any of this. They wanted to have full access to their own points of entry to gather their own resources. And this is essentially one of the biggest factors that leads to the 67 war, is this fight over territory and this fight over access to certain things, certain straits that are closed off by other countries that either Israel needs access to or Egypt or Jordan needs access to. And so, once again, Israel comes out the victor in this war. They have control now over the West Bank, the Gaza Strip, the Sinai Peninsula, and the Golan Heights. So their territory has massively expanded. And this has created a dire situation for the Palestinians, specifically in Gaza, because now Israel militarily occupies them. Before, they were they're left to be their own refugee camps. It wasn't a good situation at all. But they weren't being physically and mentally occupied. They, weren't, they didn't have soldiers literally doing patrols and searching for combatants and putting them under the microscope before this point. And this is going to be another kind of event that further strengthens nationalistic ideology in Gaza. And this is where we start to see the formations after the 67 war of a large group of Palestinian nationalists and organizations that are going to fight against Israel either clandestinely or outright uh, through different means, uh, either through terrorism or through espionage. And in 1968, Israel... Gaza is under occupation, and Israel is starting to destroy networks of resistance fighters in Gaza to quell any type of nationalistic aspirations and deny Palestinians any kind of 
right to their own land because now they're under military occupation. And you're seeing the rise of different families. In my Ancient Origins and New Frontier segment of this podcast, I talked about the different families that have established themselves in Gaza. Now, one of these families was the Shawa family. And another family is the Shafi family. Now, Rashad Shawa, part of the Shawa family, became the mayor of Gaza in 1971. And he's going to be a key player in mitigating certain things between the Israelis and the Palestinians. He is a nationalist himself, but he's not hardline. He's not militarily resisting Israel, but rather trying to reach out diplomatically to other European countries and countries around the world to help the Palestinian cause. And you have another man of the Shafi family, Mm -hmm. Haider Abdel Shafi, who is the one that had been involved with the Palestinian Red Crescent Society, which is the equivalent of the Red Cross in various countries around the world. But it's the Islamic equivalent of that. Now we're starting to see important events where Israel is imposing its occupation heavily. And we talked about Rashad Shawa, and in 1972, he's overthrown as the mayor of Gaza by Israel. And so now, because they were occupying before, but now they're directly giving their administration to Gaza instead of having proxies of Palestinians administrating in Gaza. So this is going to, to antagonize the Palestinians even, even more. It's a terrible situation. It's one of the worst things that Israel could have done at this point to mitigate. But then again, Israel has had a policy ever since the 48 war and the Fedayeen attacks to essentially annex Gaza eventually and oust the refugees because they're too much of an internal threat to Israel. They're the worst possible threat to Israel that could be imagined. And during the 1970s, we see a bunch of violent events happen because of the escalating tension that Israel and the various Palestinian groups have been experiencing. We have the group Black Black September that uh, committed the Munich massacre, where a bunch of Israeli, where the Olympic team for Israel was taken hostage and murdered, summarily executed in a political move to put more pressure on Israel. And we have Black September, the event also in Jordan, where we have a group of Palestinians that tried to assassinate the king of Jordan at that time. And so the Middle East is becoming very, very destabilized. It's a very touch-and-go situation 
and this fight between the Israelis and the Palestinians is unsustainable for the region. Now moving into the 1980s, we start to see more and more modern formation of terrorist attacks and the four first types of suicide uh, bombings or rather attacks that happen from Gaza against different civilians or military personnel of Israel. And we have more the more and more influence of of um, the Muslim Brotherhood in Gaza. And it's interesting to note too that um, the Muslim Brotherhood is essentially responsible for creating Hamas. They were the ones who exerted their influence. And Hamas is essentially the offshoot of the Muslim Brotherhood in the Gaza Strip. They, the Muslim Brotherhood infused their hardline views on Islam into Gaza. And it influenced an entire generation. And this is where you're going to see more and more violence because of the intolerable teachings of the Muslim Brotherhood and their Islamist view of the world. So it's in the 1980s that you see a bunch of terroristic attacks. In 1980, there's an Islamist attack on the Palestinian Red Crescent in Gaza. In 1983, you have an Israeli civilian being murdered in one of the markets of Gaza. In 1984, you have one of the various nationalistic groups that had formed from the influence and the aspirations of the previous Fedayeen and groups in the 1960s called the PFLP, and they hijacked an Israeli bus. So things are, are escalating extremely fast. And the violence is escalating at an astronomical event. And now we have the establishment in the 1980s as well of settlements in, in the Gaza Strip. And this is going to escalate the violence to even more astronomical levels than could be possibly seen at this point. And we're also going to see internal conflicts in Gaza between different groups vying for power over it and their vision for what Palestine should be, where we have the nationalists and the Islamists the Islamists coming from the Muslim Brotherhood camp, they view any, any kind of deviation away from Islam to be sacrilege. They, they don't want unity, essentially. And the nationalists are more concerned of having a nation rather than making it an Islamic one right away as their primary goal. And so we get these clashes in the late 80s. We have groups like Islamic Jihad, which is another Islamist group in the Gaza Strip, extremely violent one, carrying out attacks. We start to see the formation of 
different brigades or so-called militias that are going to launch attacks into Israel. In 1987, we see the seminal event of the first intifada happen. It begins in Gaza. It's a collective uprising of Palestinians, mostly civilians, against the Israeli occupation. They're fed up. Intifada is a word that comes from Arabic that means to shake off, to resist. So essentially they're, they're shaking off what's, what's irritating them, which is the Israeli occupation. They can't live under these, these, these terms anymore. And it's within this framework in 1987 that we also get the beginnings of Hamas. Like I said earlier, Hamas is the Muslim Brotherhood's offshoot in the Gaza Strip. And in 1988, we have the Hamas Charter being created. This is the one that talks about killing Jews wherever you find them and outlines their Islamist ideology, their need to destroy Israel at all costs and their unwillingness to normalize or make any kind of negotiations with Israel. And it's also important to note that during the internal disputes in the Gaza Strip between the nationalists and the Islamists, like I mentioned before, that Israel had tried to play one off against the other. They saw the nationalists as a bigger threat. They saw Yasser Arafat with the PLO and Fatah as a huge threat. These were the people before all of the splintered groups when Yasser Arafat was recognized as the key player, as the one that all of these Arab countries and the Palestinians recognized as the person to fight against Israel. This was the group that was seen as the most dangerous. And so what the Israelis did was they gave more support to the Muslim Brotherhood in the Gaza Strip in order to play one off against the other, in, in, in order to focus to make the Muslims in the Gaza Strip more pious and in their skewed logic less likely to resist Israel militarily because they would focus so much on religion that they wouldn't be concerned with worldly affairs, or at least less concern with them, and more focus on metaphorical things to focus on. But this ultimately backfired for Israel. And this is a clear example of something, you could even draw comparisons to this when waves of immigration of Jews were coming into Palestine. You could make this comparison to say that the Jews never really understood the Islam or the local culture enough to really know what they were dealing with. And so this is a, a, a very poorly misunderstood attempt to sway the Palestinians' fervor in Israel's favor and to calm the escalating violence, but it essentially backfired. And moving into the 90s, you're seeing more and more violence. It's not looking to end in any sight, and Israel still occupies 
the Gaza Strip. This is where you start to see Israel restricting the rights of Gaza's workers to come into Israel. It's creating a second-class citizen situation. Um, and in 1993, Israel seals off Gaza for the first time. Before this, there were various ways in which Israel would restrict the flow of Gaza, of, of workers from Gaza coming into Israel, but it wasn't completely sealed off, and it wasn't, it wasn't extremely isolated. As isolated as it could be under military occupation, it wasn't as isolated as it would now be because Israel seals off any points of entry and won't allow anybody in. And when I when I when I was talking about the the attacks in the eighties, I meant to say the first suicide bombing in, in Gaza was actually in the nineties. I messed up the the decades, but but that's okay because now we're talking about this. In nineteen ninety three, there's the first Hamas suicide bombing in Gaza, and you have a bunch of murders of various leaders in Gaza. It's during the 90s that you also get the Oslo Accords that are signed between the Israelis and the Palestinians. Yasser Arafat is responsible for this being signed. And Gaza categorically rejects what Yasser Arafat is trying to do. And they think that he's trying to normalize relations with Israel and they're not going to stand for that. And this antagonizes Hamas even more to the point where local people in Gaza are more and more willing to support and die for Hamas and the various other brigades and groups in Gaza like Islamic Jihad. So we have huge amounts of killings. It's during the 90s that we also see Yasser Arafat return to Gaza. But this doesn't last an extremely long time. Because he's eventually forced out in the coming years. Because of more and more internal disputes between Islamists and nationalists. Now coming out of the 90s. In 2000, the second intifada begins. This is really set off by the acting leader at the time of Israel, Ariel Sharon. He visits what's known as the Temple Mount in Jerusalem. The Temple Mount is considered holy to Jews, Christians, and Muslims. It's the site of what was supposedly the second temple to Jews, but it's also the site of the Al-Aqsa Mosque and the Dome of the Rock, specifically the Dome of the Rock, is the site that's said to be where Muhammad made his night journey and ascended to heaven. So it's considered holy. Ariel Sharon visits it. This is seen as a provocation and instigation of resistance and violence 
from the Palestinians, and you get the second intifada, and more and more violence. You start to see people throwing rocks and other various items that will become the staples of Palestinian resistance and symbols of Palestinian resistance to Israeli military occupation and imposition of of uh, of rule as well you get more and more bold attempts by Hamas to fight back against Israel you see the first few rockets in the early 2000s by Hamas fired into Israel and at that time there were no casualties but we're going to see further and further that the technology that Hamas is using improves. Now, to say that it's improved is is interesting because the technology they're using is very rudimentary, but it works for them. They're called Qassam rockets. They're not very big. They don't have a, a huge range, but they can fire tons of them, and they can hit from where they are in the Gaza Strip, they can hit Tel Aviv on the coast of the Mediterranean in, in, a, in a matter of, of hours. So, very, very tense situation. In 2003, there's this American student named Rachel Corey. She goes to the Gaza Strip with a group solidarity movement with the Palestinians she's crushed to death protesting the Israeli building of settlements and demolishing of Palestinian homes this is one of the few I would say one of the important few events that sparks more American opposition to Israeli settlement building and Israeli presence in Gaza. In the same year, you have an anti-American attack at Erez. The American citizens are essentially banned from the Gaza Strip after this event. You have more and more leaders of Hamas and different Palestinian groups being assassinated in the mid early to mid 2000s in 2004 Yasser Arafat dies there's speculation as to whether he was poisoned there's an autopsy conducted by various countries including Russia and France and I believe they had found no evidence of foul play in the conclusion of their independent investigations, but there's still conspiracies about that and speculations today. In 2005, we have the election of Mahmoud Abbas, the Palestinian Authority. This is the government and group that is in control of the West Bank. Fatah, the group that Yasser Arafat had been a part of, had been ousted by the Islamists in starting in the 90s and 2000s so they had to relocate to the West Bank there was no future for them in the Gaza Strip 
there's too much violence. And then in, also in 2005, you have the evacuation of all Israeli settlements in Gaza started under Ariel Sharon because of the same level of violence. It was completely unsustainable to have Israeli settlements in essentially an autonomous region, or would-be autonomous region that's under military occupation and that the settlements there are completely illegal according to international law. And in 2006, one of the most important events in Gaza's history, Hamas is elected in the Gaza Strip, in the Palestinian parliament, and this will have an effect on how Palestine is viewed, continue on into the future, in the media, and in public perception, as well as how Israel decides to deal with Hamas's presence and the urban warfare that will take place because of the asymmetrical warfare that is now being conducted by both sides. In June of 2006, a soldier of the Israel of the IDF is is captured. He's held hostage by Hamas named Gilad Shalit. This further antagonizes Israel and gives Israel the front to conduct more military operations against the Gaza Strip. They would use any event to conduct these kinds of things or invasions into Gaza as a way to signal to their to, to more right-wing people, more hawkish people in their government that they're doing something about Hamas. In 2007, Hamas completely expels Fatah from the Gaza Strip. So this is where you have a complete uh, a complete autocracy of Hamas over the Gaza Strip and the the firm establishment that the Gaza Strip is Islamist, that there's no room for secular nationalists or any other ideas that don't conform to the Muslim Brotherhood's vision for Palestine. There's some truces that are made in 2008, but Israel eventually breaks these truces, further antagonizing Hamas. Part of the reason that Israel broke these truces is because they don't see Hamas as a legitimate government. They see them as a terrorist organization. Hamas, in turn, says that the truce is, has been broken. And this further antagonizes them. This further makes it impossible to have any kind of agreement between one of the more hardline groups of the Palestinians. It's also in 08 that we have the Cast-Led military operation against Gaza. Enormous amounts of bombings that cause extreme, uh, uh, extreme casualties and catastrophe. You see hospitals being bombed. You see children being bombed. You have infants dying. You have elderly people dying. 
it's it's an event that again stimulates the world's conscious and some of the biggest powers like America and some of the European powers to condemn Israel but also you now have more civilian support from those countries against Gaza in 2010 you have the Mavi Marmara or Mamara I'm not I hope I'm pronouncing that right it, but essentially it's a it's a ship that's coming from Turkish ports with a bunch of activists and people from Turkey but also other countries coming to break the naval blockade of the Gaza Strip. Gaza doesn't have full access to its own port. There's a restriction on fishing. Essentially, I don't know the specifics of the of the uh, of the restriction on fishing, but it's a certain mile radius that the fishers have, which essentially confines them into a space where you can't catch much because you have to go a certain distance out to even be able to catch enough food to feed people as well as sell in the sooks or the markets, as they would say in, in Arabic, they call it souk. And we, what we have after the ship comes to break this blockade is Israeli naval ships intercepting the ship and coming on board and from the Israeli perspective saying that these activists carried weapons, there's videos, there's body cam footage and footage from the activists themselves that do show some of them carrying weapons, but there's a political slant to anything that will be discussed related to this event because of the way that Israel dealt with it. It's seen as another event that um, instigates more resistance internationally to Israel. And in, in the same year, Israel partially lifts the blockade of Gaza because of international pressure and condemnation and in 2011 we we see more demonstrations for Palestinian unity in the Gaza Strip we see more rockets being fired and it's in the same year that Galad Shalit is freed for an exchange of Palestinian prisoners I think it's uh, a thousand or so Palestinian prisoners freed from Israeli jails, mostly without trial, for in on on on, um, on indications that they were or implications rather that they were involved with firing rockets or conducting or, or tunneling tunneling uh, from the Gaza Strip to get into Israel to commit terroristic acts. And, and this is sort of where I want to end. This is sort of where the book ends. It doesn't go much farther than this. It's, it's up to close enough where we are, where we sit. People can always do their, their, their own research on this. This is just my way of discussing this book. I really, really enjoyed this book. I hope I did its service in giving a summary of it.
I, I enjoyed recording this inaugural episode. I thought that this was the perfect way to introduce this podcast and introduce the way that I want to conduct this podcast, give sort of accounts of history, personal history with people. I plan to have people on to talk about their histories with anything, what background they come from, their interaction, the intersections of history with one singular person, some somebody I could bring on that could have experienced something incredible, which I want to do. I want to do more book reviews, and I just generally want to have more conversations. I don't think that this podcast will be in solo format, or at least hopefully not, for the rest of the run. I hope to have more people on, and hopefully in the future I would have a co-host or at least somebody else that I could sort of trade knowledge with and pick their brain about various topics that we both enjoy that are related to history. Uh, I'm signing off. I'm your host, Josh Cohn, and I was pleased to bring you the book Gaza, A History and review it for all of you. And I really hope you enjoyed. I hope I gave a visual and colorful experience in discussing this book.